Hello, and welcome back to Season 2 of The Axe and Politics. Some exciting news, you can now subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, so if you go and look up The Axe and Politics, you'll find us there. We are your weekly dose of Stanford politics, here to give you a little taste of what's been going on. This season, we have a few new members joining us, including... Ben Kaufman, who will be doing the interview later in the episode. I'm Kayla Guillory. I'm Lucas Rodriguez. And I'm Akash Watabi. And this has been a pretty exciting time, or a pretty disheartening time, depending on who you voted for in the 2016 election. Yeah, it's definitely been a very consequential time. I mean, we can just jump right into it, I guess. First things first, obviously Donald Trump has uh, claimed the presidency in a very, very surprising victory, to say the least. I think it's worth noting that uh, the Republicans had a clean sweep of, of essentially all three branches of government, especially given that Trump will get to nominate at least one Supreme Court justice and likely more than that. The last time this happened was under President George W. Bush from 2003 to 2007, and it's sort of spurring a lot of divisive reactions across college campuses all around the country. Yeah, I would definitely say that that's just so far in the immediate 24 hours following the election. That is my largest takeaway is just I've quickly realized how divided our country is and how... Uh, sorted we are geographically and politically and just right next door to Stanford Berkeley there are massive protests in the streets road closures at University of Texas in Austin in the streets of Chicago New York Philadelphia people are blocking the roads shouting you know Trump he's not my president absolutely and here at Stanford we've seen ourselves a lot of backlash to this you know it's very interesting you have a large range of reactions um i think it's safe to say that most of the student body is pretty upset about this the hashtag not my president has been trending and that's all over you know but you also have the small group of students and i believe it's somewhere like 3.1 percent of students who openly said here at stanford that they are trump supporters and um you know you do have some people saying that people need to accept Donald Trump as their president because that's what happened, you know, but that's still difficult. And I can tell you firsthand it's difficult for me. So, you know, it's been a very eventful 24 hours here at Stanford, I would say. Um, And honestly, I think in the coming weeks we're going to see a little bit more of that before things calm down. Yeah, one of the things that I think a lot of Stanford students are coming to realize slowly right now is how insulated the Stanford community has has become during the course of this election in terms of the media we consume and the choices we make about what to discuss and what not to discuss, what topics are socially taboo and what topics aren't. And so I think uh, in in the coming months, and then especially as we approach the, the 2018 midterms and then eventually the next election, we'll see ourselves slowly, uh, hopefully, beginning to diversify the range of opinions that we look at and, and consider a lot of factors that we really didn't give a lot of thought to prior to this election and this result. Yeah, and I, I, I definitely just really want to highlight that because this is a man that espoused so much hateful rhetoric and so much divisive rhetoric. And to everyone in our camps, in our side of the country, in California, at Stanford, it was just unfathomable and unthinkable to believe that this could actually happen. But just because we were just so disconnected from a whole... of the country, whatever that popular vote margin was, that voted for this man. And I can openly say I know, like, two Trump supporters personally. And it's just such an empathy wall between us and them. And it's sad to see. um, But hopefully, I don't know how we go about fixing that, but it's just something definitely to work on. But on a brighter note... (laughs) Yes, there were some things people would consider wins in the election, and that is the first black mayor of Stockton was elected... The number of women of color quadrupled in the Senate. Camilla Harris won the California Senate seat, making her the first 
Indian and, and African American. Yeah, women, Indian and African American um, women to win that seat, and then Maisie Hirono was. Japan, a Japanese-American woman from Hawaii who also won a Senate seat. Yeah, I mean, in addition to Tammy Duckworth out of Illinois and Catherine Mosto out of Nevada, Mosto being one of the first Latina senators to ever be in the chamber, and then Tammy Duckworth, another Asian-American, is yeah, that correct? Yeah, an, an Asian, uh, a woman of Asian-American descent whose father's family actually goes back to the founding of America and the Revolutionary War and who is herself a veteran who has served in a combat zone before. Both of those last two races actually being pretty nasty elections for the most part. Yeah, as was the case nationally, of course. Some other optimistic news, if you are in favor of the legalization of marijuana, seven states have now approved marijuana for recreational use. 20 states, as well as Washington, D.C., have decriminalized marijuana, and 22 states have approved marijuana for medical use. So this is just a huge leap for the legalization of marijuana across the country, a really big win for supporters of marijuana last night. Yeah, and it's definitely fascinating just because that is something that is still illegal at the federal level. So it's going to be just very interesting to see how you reconcile, like, it's legal in your state, but maybe if the FBI comes around, then they can technically charge you with possession of this. I did read that President Obama did say something along the lines of if it turned out in this election that a lot of the country did legalize weed, which was the case, he would back off, at least for the remainder of his term, in terms of making this a top priority of his to enforce this federal statute. But And that's actually especially interesting because it might have some ramifications in terms of what kinds of pardonable offenses Obama looks at in, in the final days of his office mm-hmm. in ways that other presidents really haven't had the political cover to do much with, especially in the context of the broader public debate about criminal justice reform and sentencing and so on. Yeah, for sure. And that, you know, we will definitely get more into... The rest of the California ballot propositions a little later in the episode, we actually have a very exciting interview with David Crane, who was a special advisor to Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger back in the day. So that'll be later in the episode. Be sure to stay tuned for that. But now I think it's time to transition away from the election a little bit. You know, there's a lot to be said and a lot has been said and more stuff will come out in the coming days. But I think we covered most of it for the most part, I'd say, right? Absolutely. So pivoting a little bit back to Stanford, Persis Durrell was just appointed the new provost, which is pretty incredible. She's a pretty amazing woman. She's a physicist. She was the director of the SLAC National Accelerator Laboratory. And before she was appointed as provost, she was the dean of the Stanford School of Engineering. So this is a really highly acclaimed woman. She's pretty incredible. And it's pretty incredible that she has been named our new provost. You know, I know last year we had issues on campus regarding diversity and the appointment of Mark Tessier Levine as our new president. He was not fully in charge of finding the new provost. There was like another committee was established, but they went with Persis Stroud, who is just an absolutely phenomenally impressive individual. When you talk about women in STEM, this is like the woman in STEM. So it's really exciting to have her uh, on board and to be in such a powerful position at the university. That about wraps up our weekly overview. Now we'll transition to an interview with David Crane, who advised Governor Schwarzenegger, and we'll discuss some of California's ballot propositions, of which there were several interesting ones that we want to highlight. All right. David Crane is an American lecturer in public policy at Stanford and a research scholar at the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research. He is the president and co-founder of Govern for California and a member of the State Budget Crisis Task Force. He also served as a special advisor to California's Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger from 2004 to 2010. He's also joining us now in the Stanford Political Journal podcast. David, welcome. Nice to be here, Ben. 
So, of course, election happens on Tuesday. Let's talk propositions. Um, there were 17 of them. We just wanted to highlight a couple of them. 51, which was approved, allowed California to borrow $9 billion in new school bonds. 52, which also passed, restricts diverting funds away from Medi-Cal. 54, requires legislation to be published online before final vote. That passed. Um, 60, requires condoms for porn actors. That one failed. 62, repeals the death penalty. That failed. And 64, which legalizes marijuana, passed. What's your initial take? Well, each one of them had very different constituencies. So, so for example, Proposition 51, which was uh, $9 billion of bonds to be issued for the construction, theoretically, of new schools, was opposed, for example, by Governor Brown. And the reason he opposed it is because he knows what's really going on there, which is construction companies and others push that bond because they want to make a lot more money by making schools at very high costs per square foot. Mm -hmm. Uh, so the governor opposed it, and people who understand the way things really work opposed it, but it passed because of extensive spending by the financial interests that will benefit from that spending. And some schools will get built, but you could have had more schools built for that $9 billion that will end up being the case. You asked about Prop 54, uh, which is transparency, which is an interesting one, uh, which you would think would not be controversial, and it turns out no one spent money against it, uh, which is a good thing. I supported it as well. It simply requires that bills be placed online for 72 hours before the legislature can, can vote on them. And the reason the promoter of that, who's a Stanford professor, Charles Munger Jr., who's at the Linear Accelerator, pushed that is because the legislature has a history of doing things known as gutting and amending bills at the last minute. And then the bills contain language that nobody intended to be there, but then they get passed at the last minute. So that language prevents that now, at least theoretically, and those bills will be online. That's a good thing in my view. Uh, you asked about Prop 64, the marijuana initiative. Uh, I voted for it. I think it's a good thing. It's not that it was costing the state. We don't incarcerate many people in California because of marijuana offenses. There may be a, some tax revenue that can be associated with the passage there. So um, I don't think it's controversial in the past. We're now the 24th state that has legalized marijuana in some way. It's not like we're leading the way there. Condom for, for pornography films, one that failed, that was um, very controversial, uh, including in the gay community. Scott Weiner, who just won the state Senate race in San Francisco, which was an incredibly combative and very important race for the state legislature. There are only 40 state senators in California. Each one of them represents about a million people. The election of a state senator in California has more influence on the lives of ordinary Californians, that is, those that send their kids to public schools, ride public transportations, the one out of three people that use public health in California, that election had a greater in, impact on their lives than the election did of the person elected to the U.S. Senate in California. Scott, who was gay and who I also supported for the state Senate, opposed that legislation, saying there is already enough protection available for actors in pornographic films that they shouldn't also require uh, condom. So I, I don't know if people really focused a lot on, on the science there, but from his perspective, it was a good thing that it failed. Repealing the death penalty failed, which always amazes me in California. We're a liberal state. Uh, I opposed the death penalty. I voted for the repeal of that penalty, but it, but it failed. And I can't really explain that. I think that it, it maybe it might be a, a religious issue for certain people who think that there has to be an eye for an eye. I don't really know.
uh, but it's always surprising to me. It also it's just like Oklahoma. They just enhanced the death penalty there, I think. And California enhanced it by shortening the period of time now that the defendants can appeal their cases. Uh, that was the other proposition that did pass. The prescription drug proposition failed, Prop 61, uh, which was controversial. Bernie Sanders came out and pushed it. It would not have worked very well. It would have tied California's drug prices to what the Veterans Administration charges or the prices it gets from pharmaceutical companies. And that's because under U.S. law, uh, and Obamacare made this worse, the only agency in the government that can negotiate uh, discount prices for volume purchases with pharmaceutical companies is the Veterans Administration. Medicare, which is the biggest buyer of pharmacy, pharmaceutical products in the world, in the country, is not allowed to negotiate that volume discount. Neither is Medicaid under the Obamacare expansion. The first place that President Obama went to to negotiate Obamacare was with the pharmaceutical companies, and that's what they wanted. So Bernie Sanders wanted to tie California's drug prices for a select portion of the population to Veterans Administration prices. But that likely would have raised prescription drug prices for other people in California. The right way to address that issue is federally. And that will require people who are willing to stand up to pharmaceutical companies at the federal level. The Medi-Cal tax, which is really, that's really more of a tactical measure. So Medicaid in California, which covers one out of three Californians. So 13.5 million Californians are covered by Medicaid. Medicaid is health care for people who are at 138% or less of the poverty level. And Obamacare expanded that. It was at 100% of the poverty level, and now it's 138%. That expenditure is significantly financed by the state, but largely financed by the federal government, well, equally financed by the federal government. That measure, which imposed that particular tax, is a way to attract more federal subsidy for Medicaid spending in California. For, so it was tactical, and there was no reason for anybody to vote against it. I think that, that covers most of the propositions. The, the, the interesting races in California this year were much more about the legislature. Now, the legislature, people don't realize that because the, the press is always about initiatives and insufficiently about these legislators. I mentioned the state senator represents a million people in California. Uh, each state senator does, only 40 of them. There are 80 state assembly people. They each represent 500,000 people. This year, those, that group of 120 people and the governor will spend $250 billion. They will, $87 billion will go to K-12 education, which is a state-run enterprise where they educate 6 million people, 6 million students. They will make decisions, for example, in that legislature to devote more money to the salaries of prison guards than to the University of California. That's a legislative decision. They will make decisions to improve the compensation of certain state employees and reduce state spending on the University of California welfare and California State University. Those are all steps taken by the state legislature, and hardly anybody pays attention to those sorts of things. I mean, even legislators who represent Berkeley will vote to cut Berkeley in a year where they, will, where they also voted to boost prison guard compensation. For prison guards, are already paid twice the national average. So those things are very much under the radar. Propositions get too much attention. The legislators get an insufficient amount of, of attention. And the net result is very bad things can happen. You know, for example, in California, uh, bad teachers cannot easily be replaced. And the worst teachers tend to get sent to the poorest districts. California spends about $2,000 more per student than does Texas, for example. 
that poor and minority students in California perform much worse on tests than poor and minority students in Texas. That's in part because California diverts more money to pensions and California doesn't dismiss bad teachers very easily. All that can be handled by the state legislature. You don't need a proposition to do that. So people should really be paying more attention to their state assembly person and their state senator. The vast majority of Californians don't even know the name of their state senator or their state assembly person. Okay. You've highlighted the extent to which there's disproportionate attention diverted away from state legislature. We have people's attention to the extent that they're listening right now. What would be your too-long-didn't-read summary of what people should be paying attention to in the race for California's state legislature? Uh, I can make it very simple for them. They should pay, at pay attention to whether or not the candidates meet the following tests. Are they intelligent, financially literate, do they have the kind of temperament that works well in a legislative environment where people have to make a compromise? Because legislative environments are very different. It's 120 people, and to get anything done, you have to make a trade. Not everybody is good at that. I, for example, would not be good in that environment. You can't be strident. You have to be willing to compromise, etc. So you need people with the right temperament. Um, and then you, you need people who are courageous, which means on occasion, because they got to care enough about themselves to want to get elected and stay elected, they care about something greater than themselves over which they have authority as a state legislator. So I mentioned state legislators will spend, oversee the spending of $88 billion this year on K-12 education for 6 million kids. Everybody knows that to get, you're at Stanford, everybody knows that to get ahead in this world, which is incredibly competitive, people need high quality education. But not everybody gets that. Rich kids can go to private schools, other kids might live in suburbs where there are better schools, and a lot of schools are not very good. The state legislature determines whether or not those schools are properly funded, properly staffed, prop properly technological, and all the rest. So people should be paying attention to legislators who care about something over which they have authority. So, you know, for example, a state legislator who might be very courageous about preventing genocide in a foreign country, that's a courageous thing, but it's not something over which they have authority in the state legislature. The state legislature, they take care of Public safety, good example is California in 1977, I think it was, passed a law when Governor Brown was then the governor the first time, known as determinate sentencing. The governor signed it, legislation passed by the legislature, all statutory, not a proposition. That legislation imposed mandatory minimum sentences on people convicted of crimes. It took away uh, the power of judges to make allowances in certain cases. The net result of that is California's prison population looked like a hockey stick. It went straight up after that. The legislature, for the next 30-plus years, could have changed that statutorily, but they didn't do a thing about it. And that's large. And at the, at the same time, Californians were often very upset about a growing prison population, a perceived unfairness that people were in prison for too long, and the entire time, the legislature could have addressed it, and hardly any Californian knew that their state legislator could address that. Instead, they focused on things like propositions one known as three strikes, that they repealed, which was a good thing to repeal, but it barely touched the prison population. Touching it required touching statutory legislation. So the reason I say pay attention to intelligence and financial literacy and legislative temperament and, and courage is because once these legislators get elected, they're basically going to be there for 12 years. California now has 12-year term limits. They, they're going to get reelected every two years or four years in the Senate, unless they commit a crime. The incumbency advantage is very great. They consider 5,000 bills a year. 
as I mentioned, they spend $250 billion a year. They write all the criminal codes, the education code, the environmental code, the business and profession code, all those sorts of things. And who do you want there? Someone you trust to make good decisions. Not necessarily someone who will make the decisions you want on a particular issue, but someone, it's almost like picking a, a spouse in a way, someone you will trust over the next 12 years if you have kids to raise your children well. Those state legislators, you have to have the same trust in them. So you pick them based on qualities and characteristics. Mm -hmm. So who do you think falls in that framework and who do you think falls out in the current Senate that was just elected? Well, I, uh, I'm very biased because my political organization supports people for the state legislature. So people who clearly fall into that category are uh, Scott Weiner, who just got elected to the state Senate from San Francisco. Uh, I'm, I'm not an education snob, but he's a kid that grew up in New Jersey, where you're from. Harvard undergrad, and then I forget where he went to law school. Uh, he practiced law, ran for the uh, city council, the board of supervisors in San Francisco. He is a problem solver. He has an amazing temperament for getting on with, with people and, and engaging disparate opinions. He is a, uh, I have no idea if he'll agree with me on, on all the issues that I tend to focus on, but I know he's the kind of person who can figure it all out and make good decisions because he cares about his fellow citizens. Another example is a state senator from West Los Angeles that we helped elect in 2014 named Ben Allen. Ben is from LA, ran for the Santa Monica School Board, became president of that organization, uh, which showed that he could really had the right temperament for dealing with people. I would have thought once Ben got elected that he was the kind of legislator who would over time reform education in California. I was very surprised when the first major piece of legislation that he took up was California's vaccination legislation. Now, you may not be aware of this, but we had a measles outbreak, a serious measles outbreak in California started in Disneyland, I think. Turns out a lot of places in California were not vaccinating. We were losing some level of herd immunity one of those places where they had lower levels of vaccination was West Los Angeles, where he's from. Other places in California, like Marin County, have lower levels of vaccination. He's the last person who should have brought up that issue, but he brought it up, got death threats. California ended up passing legislation requiring vaccination, but they built in a compromise where people who don't want to vaccinate their kids can homeschool their children. That was courageous. It was a public health issue that he didn't need, he didn't have to take on. Those are the kinds of people that are great. People that aren't great, I hate pointing out people. I, I, I don't want to point out negatively, but they are good examples of people who, uh, you know, another one, uh, a Republican, Catherine Baker, who's elected to the state assembly from the East Bay of San Francisco. The only Republican elected uh, to the state legislature from the Bay Area uh, is a very good compromiser. She has to be to get things done. She just voted for one of, you know, the governor's important environmental initiatives, which the Republican Party doesn't always like. She's courageous. Uh, Laura Friedman from Los Angeles got elected. There are a number of good examples. You touched on ed reform. You touched on prison reform. You touched on pensions. If you could draw Stanford students' attention toward one big legislative issue in California, what would it be? Well, since Stanford students are so smart, I'll give them the toughest one. It's Medicaid. So people need health care. And uh, Medicaid, as I mentioned, is known as Medi-Cal in California covers 13.5 million Californians. The state this year, or overall, the spending will be $93 billion on that. $27 billion of that will come out of the state budget, which is way up from just five years ago. And that money coming out of the state budget is reducing the amount of the state can spend on welfare, the University of California, and California State University. The net result is 
State spending is, revenues are way up over the last five or six years, but state spending on welfare is basically flat, even though one out of four Californians lives under the poverty line. State spending on UC and CSU, their share of the budget's down 20%, and that's significantly because state spending on Medicaid is way up. At the same time, the medical care that these people are getting is, is not great. Only 40% of California doctors will accept Medicaid patients. The perform, performance measures are spotty at best. There's recent evidence out of Oregon that even the expansion of Medicaid under Obamacare has not reduced emergency room visits. So emergency rooms are still being inundated with people. I don't know if the same thing was true in California. So people need health care. Government's going to spend a lot on it no matter what. It's crowding out spending on other very important things. Someone has to come up with a way where you get better bang for that buck. And one uh, piece of evidence indicates that roughly 60% of the money spent on Medicaid goes to about is focused on about 6% of the patients who are chronically sick, people with diabetes, et cetera, who could be addressed in ways where they live healthier lives. The difficulty there is the people who make the money from all that healthcare spending, hospitals, pharmaceutical companies, doctors and nurses, like the money. They're not bad people, but they like earning money. And so uh, their interests are not necessarily coincident with the notion of getting better health care for the buck. So somebody figuring out a way where you can get better Medicaid spending in California for the 13.5 million people so they get better health care at lower expense per patient so that we can get more money back to UC and CSU and welfare, that's a bit the holy grail. People should focus on that. So transitioning from what was once a medical issue and is now a recreational issue, mm -hmm. where do you think marijuana goes from here? It's now legal. Well, I... I don't, the short answer is I don't know. It's funny, my mother is visiting. I was born and raised in Colorado and my 91-year-old mother is visiting me right now from Denver and her biggest complaint is that the legalization of marijuana has led to uh, more property crime and accidents in Colorado. Now, I have no idea if what my mother is saying is true. I've read recently some, some evidence that indicates there are, there are more problems associated with the legalization in that regard, but I really don't know. But I really don't know what you can do about it. It's not, government can't stop it. Uh, people are going to smoke marijuana. They're going to get it one way or another. So we might as well legalize it, tax it, get some revenue out of it. And then people should be educated about the proper use or non-use of recreational drugs just the way they are about alcohol. I mean, I still think more people are harmed by alcohol abuse than they are by marijuana abuse. And alcohol is legal. So a lot of that is about education Everybody knows you shouldn't do things that are bad for you. I don't think government can do much else to tell people to be careful about that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. You probably would know more about that than me. <laughs> you tell me where it's going. I, I wish I could tell you. Um, <laughs> the proposition relating to statewide votes on infrastructure projects that cost more than $2 billion failed. That was, yeah, Prop 53. So, so the, the person that put that on the ballot is a, is a farmer named Dino Cortopassi from, he's known as the Tomato King from Stockton. And he's a, a fascinating guy who got indignant over the notion that the state needs to go to voters for approval for general obligation bonds. So for example, the bonds that were just approved for the schools, those are general obligation bonds. They're Prop 51. The state just approved, the voters just approved $9 billion to build new schools. Those are general obligation bonds, which means the taxpayers are on the hook for them. They, under California law, get to vote on those. And if you get more than 50%, they pass. So in Prop 51, passed. Revenue bonds 
are bonds that are issued that theoretically don't need voter approval because they're going to be paid by fees rather than taxation. But what happens if there aren't sufficient fees? Are governments going to leave unbuilt, you know, half-built highways if the fees aren't sufficient to continue to make a water project work properly? That's very important for public health. Is the government not going to step in and make sure that works right? I think the answer is the government's probably going to step in in those cases. And this fellow thought that it was important that voters, therefore, have the right to approve those as well. Now, I don't think that's as big of an issue as another one. A far bigger liability, which has a much bigger impact on Californians' lives, are pensions and retiree health care for government employees. And those are contractual. So, for example, uh, California Prison Guard, let's say, they, uh, their compensation consists of salary plus promises to pay them pensions when they retire, which they, they could do at 55 or 57 and a half or something like that. Those promises are debt, right? And they work just fine if when the promise is made to the employee while they're working, enough money is contributed at that time so that with investment income, it grows to pay the pension when the employee is actually retired. And if there isn't enough money put away then, then in the future, there are these big deficits and those end up being funded by taxpayers in the future, which takes away money from what they need, you know, it takes away from their schools, etc. right? So those are bigger debts. The net result is that we haven't been putting enough money away every time they make that pension promise, and that's mostly because of gaming by the pension boards, who want to keep as low as possible the cost of the employee, which raises the cost of future citizens. We've built up these big pension deficits, which are now about $225 billion. The cost of meeting those is crowding out state spending on, along with Medicaid, is playing the biggest role in spending, in crowding out spending on UC and CSU and welfare and all those sorts of things. And those are not approved by voters for the same reason that the revenue bonds are not approved. So to me, voters ought to have the right to approve something where they're on the hook, even though the, the idea is enough money is going to be put away up front to meet those obligations. If it's not, they're the ones who are getting crushed. So this year, for example, California is doubling spending out of school districts. School districts are going to have to double their spending on pensions for teachers that are long gone because of big pension deficits, which reduces the amount of money they have available to pay new teachers, both enough of them and to give them raises, which they need. That's caused by pension deficits, which are in turn caused by issuance of debt a long time ago. So I'm very sympathetic with this point of view, but it's not as important as having the same thing for pensions and retiree health care. So looking at that and other issues that you mentioned, do you think we have the political will and the governmental infrastructure to deal with those in the current California legislature? Not yet, but I think we will. The reason I formed Government for California was because I wanted legislators, to, I wanted Californians to have the chance to elect people with the intelligence and the financial literacy to actually recognize these are problems and to address them in the way that they think is best. I think that uh, we, we just had enormous success in the last election. We won 12 of 13 races on Tuesday. Uh, we won seven of eight in 2014. You don't need to have a majority. You need to have an ethical block, if you will, of legislators to, to get these things done. And I think that uh, by January of 2019, we will have that. And then you'll have at least, you know, it sounds silly, but we've been looking for like Abe Lincoln type people. It's funny because Scott, uh, Scott Wiener, for example, is also very tall and lanky. But um, we've been looking for people who, who we feel comfortable would make good judgments 
and do what's in the best interest of, of the state. And we're starting to find them because what's been missing, this, is, this may be more than you ever wanted to know, the only people that have been paying attention to state elections to date have been the people that feed at the trough, that is either the people that get the money, that $250 billion that is spent a year, the healthcare corporations uh, and the government employees get 70 cents out of every one of those dollars. They pay attention to the legislature. They're up there every day. The other groups that pay attention every day are those that don't want to be regulated to their detriment. Chevron pays attention every day. The other groups that pay attention are those that want the legislature to help them maintain a moat around their businesses so that other people can't come in there. The Dental Association is very good at paying attention because they want to make sure that only certain people can provide dental services. Pawnbrokers Association, realtors, all those sorts of people, they're all good people, but like prison guards and others who are good people, they are special interests who want their share of the pie or to protect their moats. The people that haven't been paying attention are the rest of us. And the reason, and that's the reason that students have lost, college students' tuition has gone way up at public universities in California, welfare recipients have lost, fee payers in general have lost, and taxpayers have lost. If you have this ethical block of legislators up there who will be thinking about the citizens at large, then they will address these issues. Mm -hmm. You said you, we need more Ablingans. I thought you might have meant that we need more Republicans. We'll take either one. <laughs> I mean, most state issues, it, you know, ask yourself, what state, what, what are the, what's partisan about any of the state issues I just mm -hmm. mentioned? When it comes to public schools, the most partisan aspect about that is whether or not, it's not partisan at all, it's whether or not somebody is sort of controlled by the government employee unions or not. Mm -hmm. And they, the issue there is our kids getting a good education. I don't know if maybe they have good public schools where you went, if you went to public school in New Jersey. You know, not everywhere in California has great public schools. And how'd you like to be a parent who can't make sure their kid has a good teacher? That is not a partisan issue. Good health care for the 13 million Californians that are on Medicaid is not a partisan issue. Making sure that that money is ably spent so that we don't cut welfare spending in UC in order to provide that health care, what's partisan about that? Democrat or Republican, shouldn't they be looking for ways to provide those services at the lowest cost so we can properly fund UC? That's not a partisan issue. It's not a partisan issue. So in our last couple minutes, closing question, it's been a rough week for a lot of Stanford students. There's been a lot of crying. There's been a lot of despondency, and a lot of people are feeling really disillusioned. That's mostly because of federal races, one in particular. What can Stanford students do, though, to continue engaging in politics, specifically at the state level, uh, post-election? And what issues should they focus on? You mentioned a number. What are some actionable steps they can take? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because I, I mentioned I'm from Colorado. I went back to Denver with my son and daughter and uh, canvassed for Hillary Clinton because Colorado was potentially a swing state. And even took my mother, my 91-year-old mother, I mentioned who had never voted for a Democrat in her life, pinned a Hillary Clinton button at her, and we walked through Denver canvassing, and we like to say that we delivered Colorado for Hillary Clinton. So I was disappointed in the outcome as well. But the best thing Stanford students can do is to understand the roles and responsibilities of the different levels of government in the United States. State and local governments provide 90% of the domestic services in this country. I'm often stunned that even the smartest people I know don't understand that, that under our federalist system, state and local governments together spend more than the federal government does on domestic services. The thing to worry about with the president is very much national security and foreign policy. And that's what got all of us worried in particular about, you know, one particular candidate. I think this is a failure to drill down while people have been paying so much attention to that. 
They don't pay attention to the thing that greatly affects the vast majority of the people that are working on the Stanford campus. The vast majority of the people that live outside of this area, where one out of four Californians lives under the poverty level, every Californian pretty much sends their kids to public school, lots of them ride public transportation, et cetera, et cetera, and that is state and local government. So it's too easy for people to focus on the presidential stuff, and it takes work to engage in the democracy that is, I believe, was intended by the founders in a way in this sort of confederation of states. You're supposed to know what's going on in your state. So they should pay attention to their state. They should be able to name their state assembly person. They should be able to name their state senator. They should be able to know whether or not that state senator or state assembly person voted to boost prison guard con while voting to, to cut welfare. If, if they want to really walk the talk, then they should pay attention to what matters to the vast majority of their fellow citizens. That's my advice. David Crane, thanks for your time. My pleasure. Thanks again so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes. You can visit stanfordpolitics.com and click on the podcast tab to get a link to our iTunes channel as well as our SoundCloud channel. And be sure to read the other amazing pieces that the Political Journal puts out. And tune in next week for another great episode.